Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. My name is Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today I'm joined by Jing Chen from the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. Hey Jing, how are you doing today? Good, how are you, Andrew? I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's a little wet today. Yeah, kind of a bummer. Yeah, we do need some rain, though, in California. I guess so. <laughs> I moved from the East Coast to get away from rain, but... Oh. <laughs> oh, well. All right, well, let's get started talking about your uh, research here. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do on campus? Yeah, I'm a fifth-year graduate student from Elchin Uno's lab at the Molecular and Cell Biology Department. The overall goal of our lab is to understand the process of sexual reproduction and how the DNA material, proteins, and organelle can be distributed faithfully from generation to generation. For me particularly, I'm interested in the questions of how an organism can pass on genetic material faithfully to its next generation. So all of us have half of our genetic material from each of our parents. While we know that fact, we know way less about how our parents can distribute this DNA material faithfully generation after generation. And that's exactly the key question to answer if what happened if there are errors that occur in this process, which will result in genetic disorders such as Down syndrome and miscarriages in humans. For my graduate study, I investigate a protein complex that's involved in distributing DNA in this sexual reproduction process. And this protein complex is called the kinetochore, which is a physical structure that bridge between DNA and a machinery that actually pull chromosomes apart called the microtubules. I study one tiny little protein in there. And what's interesting about this protein is that during sexual reproduction in the organism that I study, it fluctuates. It goes, it disappears for a while and it comes back. And this fluctuation is important for separating the DNA faithfully. And so our laboratory, including myself, take part in understanding how the production and destruction of this protein is controlled in this particular cell division event. What organism do you study? Yeah, I use this organism called budding yeast or baker's yeast. It's a single cell organism. It's very small. We actually all know about them. We add into our bread to make it rice. And that's the yeast that we use to study this process. Okay, so why do you use it instead of a human cell if we're interested in humans? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, yeast share many, many things with us. The basic process by which it generates sex cells or gametes, they are very similar to human. But yeast is way easier to grow. You can grow them in a huge volume. There are many, many cells to study. And they are very good with manipulation by genetic means. So you can change their genetic material very easily. As a geneticist, we often ask the question, what would happen if you break something? So we can generate mutants. I'm not sure if you guys know the movies that talks about mutant do you, can you guess what that movie is the the movie that talks about mutants all yeah. i'm thinking of right now is x-men is that what movie you're talking exactly, about exactly <laughs> right so we talk about mutants we ask if we change our dna material what would happen right wait are you saying that if we change our dna we could become the mutants from x-men well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I won't go there. But <laughs> but um, the thought is similar, right? If we change part of the DNA, we can generate what we call phenotype or things that can be different from the normal conditions. And then by doing that, we can ask what's the function of this particular thing that you change. It's almost like you want to understand the function of an engine. You take apart 
part of the engine and ask what will happen to the engine. So similarly, we can do similar things to the budding yeast. We change its genetic material and ask what will happen to the process of sexual reproduction. And yeast is excellent in doing that. So we can put in foreign DNA, we can change its genome, and then we can study the process. How do you actually put in the foreign DNA? Yeah, yeast take up foreign DNA after he's shot. Like you can heat the cells to 42 degree and adding a bunch of different like um, solute and your foreign DNA, they just are very good at taking up the foreign DNA and make changes in the genome, incorporating the DNA that they uptake. You just heat it up with DNA and the DNA goes into the yeast cell? The ballpark That's... is exactly that, yeah. Cool. So that doesn't sound that complicated. Is that generally how you make mutants? Yeah, it's one of the way we do that. And now there are more so, uh, sophisticated methods like using um, CRISPR-Cas9 system, which I'm, I'm sure you will hear more about from the Berkeley community later. But you can do more targeted engineering. But yeast are really good at that even before we can use CRISPR and Cas9. So yeasts have historically been useful, but maybe now we'll be seeing other organisms be more prominent as exactly. genetic manipulation becomes more... Absolutely. Yeah, but you still have the advantage of growing really fast, and we have a lot more microscopy or molecular biology tools that we can use to study the process, while other organisms have their other um, aspect that they, they're advantageous of, but they're also disadvantaged compared to yeast. So like what kind of tools... What do you do in a lab? We look at cells under microscope. We have fluorescent microscope where and we can genetically manipulate a yeast cell to fluoresce after labeling different type of proteins. So we can watch them under microscope and see how these proteins move around, how they change over you know different stages of the cell dividing. When you say you genetically manipulate it to fluoresce, that means... So you can put another protein on the protein that's expressing yeast. And then when you shine light to that protein, because GFP, for example, will fluoresce, and then you can track the molecule that you actually attach the GFP onto. Cool. You can follow it over time. And so microscopy is a major part in our lab. Running gels or like these devices where you can separate protein by size and charge. And those will be another way to follow protein. And they're also... You can grow cells in different conditions and you can put them on plates and look at their morphology change or they, you know, do they have weird shape? Do they like grow a thicker cell wall or something? You can assess a lot of different things. So have you always been interested in this level of biology, this microscopic scale of biology? Yeah, funny things. Actually, I wasn't too interested in biology growing up. What I was very fascinated about when I was a little kid, you know, extreme weathers, like tornadoes, like stars, the universe, and right. all those kind of natural changes of, you know, colors and things that capture my eye more than a boring biology class where I would learn about body parts, how does the heart work. Eh, I didn't felt too captivated by that. But a switch kind of happened after I moved to the States. Actually, I was born in China, and then I moved here for high school with my grandmother. That's when I met a wonderful biology teacher who completely changed my view about what biology is about. In the class, we look at DNA replication models. You know, we pull apart these little balls and stick and try to put it back together to mimic what happened at the DNA level. We look at live cells under microscope. We can see these cells dividing like onion tip. Like who knew you have tracks of cells lined up 
and just waiting to be divided. And we watch videos, we do experiments, and it's just different. You know, biology become an actual interesting subject rather than just a bunch of facts that we need to memorize. And so that changed my whole perspective and got me into biology. You'd say it was that one class, that one teacher? Yeah, I mean, all it takes is one teacher, a good, caring teacher who show you a different aspect of what you didn't know before. That's all it takes. That was your first science class in high school? Yeah, it was. Yeah, right after I moved to States, it was my first science class. So then from there, you were just like, all right, I'm going to be a biologist. Well, I mean, I love the subject of biologists, um, but I would say, you know, in high school, I struggle a lot. And I, when I moved here, I didn't know much about English. You know, it was like biology was one thing that I really felt passionate about and pushed me enough to learn the language. So uh-huh. I, I enjoy the subject, obviously not limited by the subject, but it's become sort of like a more intimate friend to me. So it's, it's yeah, biology means a little different than a lot of people than myself. <laughs> So biology pushed you to learn English. Biology pushed you to get to where you are now. It's like the driving force in your life. Absolutely. And the passion is very important. Like I I learned the interesting part of it. And that motivated me to go out and learn different things. Like, you know, oh, I need to learn math. I need to learn physics to actually know more about biology. It pushed me into many directions because I have this wonderful passion for this one subject. Because of your interest in biology, you ended up actually going on a lot of different tangential experiences. So you yeah. went to, through chemistry, you went through physics, you went through math. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started applying to college, mm-hmm. what were you even thinking about? Did you have no idea which field you really wanted to go into? Yeah, I wanted to study chemistry because in biology, I felt like, you know, to really understand biology well, you need to know the chemistry. <laughs> so I started out thinking of I would be a chemistry major. and But then after first year in college, I realized I still like biology the most. And I decided to change it. So you took like a class in chemistry and you just decided, ah, oh, got to get back to biology. Or you took a class in biology and said, ah, oh, this is where I belong. I know. I took a class in biology and say, chemistry is cool, but biology is cooler still. Okay. <laughs> So you got to college. Where'd you go to undergrad? Yeah, I went to MIT um, in Cambridge. Okay, um, cool. It's a, a technology-driven school. It's a wonderful environment. It's, they have excellent teachers, and the people that they recruit, like the students' bodies are amazing. Yeah, I'm very fortunate to go to a, a very good college. Yeah. Did you have a lot of options? How did you decide MIT? Yeah, so I was picking between several schools, and MIT really caught my eye because, well, funny thing, they released their decision on Pi Day, (laughs) 3.14, so March 14th. And when I was in in high school, they have like a a recruiter where they talk about MIT. So I didn't know much about college in general when I was in high school, but he was showing all these wonderful pictures of like hackers, like putting police car on top of the dome and I and I'm making nerdy jokes about things that only scientists may appreciate more and I just feel like that's a good place for me (laughs) I like being around nerds (laughs) fair enough fair enough yeah 
All right, so you got to MIT. You were initially a chemistry major, but then right. you decided to go back to biology. Yeah. And then so you decided you wanted to be a research biologist immediately. Yeah, it's interesting because when I was in high school, I didn't know much about research. I knew that labs are fun, but I didn't know that there's actually a career that you can build by just doing labs. So MIT has a wonderful undergraduate research program where actually 80% of the undergrad there are involved in that program. So oh, you wow. can you can apply and become an inter, uh, undergraduate researcher and you can get credit or pay by being an undergrad researcher. So I just apply there and there are many postings of like which lab is accepting students and what project. And I was fortunate to find a South Division lab that I didn't know that I would get in at all. And I apply and my PI, Angelica Mon, just got back to me and said, yeah, let's talk. And I was like, great, because <laughs> I didn't have much experience. And Angelica believed in me and took me in. And I was there for four years. Cool. Did you want to do the cell division because of the high school class where you looked at the cell division under the microscope? Yeah, so that's part of it. Um, but mostly because that was the opening right. that was offered. For sure, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just fell in love. Yeah, that um, I enjoy every aspect of being in the lab and doing research and about basic science. And I have a wonderful postdoc mentor who now actually is my graduate advisor here at Berkeley. She showed me everything about research, guide me into it, supporting every aspect of my career. It's amazing. I'm so fortunate and lucky to meet many great people along the way. And she's definitely one of mine greatest supporter. So you got into your undergraduate research position and that turned you towards deciding to be a biologist. So how did you end up at Berkeley for grad school? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I also have a backstory about that. Um, (laughs) So uh, after my second year in college, I applied to this amazing program called the um, Amagen Scholars Program. At the time, there were only like nine research institutes were holding this program, and Berkeley is one of them. Um, so in this program, you basically work in a new undergrad lab, and you have your independent projects. And the one that I was happily placed in was in Doc Caution's lab at Berkeley, and he gave me a very interesting project. Uh, for the first time, I learned something completely new um, on my own and and got exposed to the Berkeley community. So that's where I learned how to play softball with my lab mates and go to seminars, uh, staring at a screen, not knowing anything, and talk about with people all the time. <laughs> and it's a very supportive environment. So by the time I was interviewing for graduate school, coming to Berkeley felt like coming home because I knew the people here. And finally, what got me convinced me to come to the school was my director of the Amazon Scholars Program, Audrey Knowlton. She was also a biodiversity director here at Berkeley, and she talked to me on the phone for over an hour, talked about pros and cons, and and she's just convinced me, like, Berkeley has the greatest people, like her, herself, who I would like to surround myself with, I, who I want to become part of, and right. and therefore I come to Berkeley. So every step of the way, it's just been like that one person that's just yeah. convinced you. Yeah. I know. It, it's I. That's interesting part about life. Every turn around the corner, you have a person lead you to the next step. 
So now you're here. You're at Berkeley. Yeah. You've been here for five years now. That's right. We've already kind of talked about what you do in the lab. What's life like for you outside the lab? What else do you have to do as a graduate student? Yeah, that's also a great question. What we think about scientists is like just doing pipetting or like doing experimenting the lab. But actually our community, like what we do is bigger than just doing little science. Right. Um, so I got a chance to go to a lot of conferences where I interact with other scientists. So for example, uh, one of the conferences I often go to is the America Society of Cell Biology. It's a big conference with over like, you know, I would say maybe 800 people over that. And people from different subdivision of cell biology come together, do poster, like PowerPoint presentation. You talk about science for a week. So we, as a scientist, we spend quite a bit of time in these gathering where we share our newest finding and discuss critically about each other's result. And those environments are also a big part of our graduate student life. Are you always talking about science with people? Or? Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so usually for these conferences, you have like scheduled talks where you sit as audience. And there will be presenters um, and they can do either poster presentation or PowerPoint. And then Usually the program ends maybe 6 o'clock. Sometimes there are evening sections, but most people just go out to socialize, like go to bars, have fun, and talk about science, yeah, but also a lot of other things like surfing um, on the coast, um, going hiking, kayaking. Yeah, like, and our department also have retreats um, where we gather, you know, faculties, um, the lab members from several faculties lab and into the same place. And in Solomar, for example, near Monterey, where we give talks, but also more importantly, have drinks and <laughs> bonding event, fire. Yeah, yeah, all the cool stuff. I feel like in media, scientists just get portrayed just doing science all the time. But it's good to hear that yeah. scientists are like living their lives, having fun, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. And like, I think, you know, the science community itself is a lot of fun, a lot of fun, yeah. other than just about doing the literary thing, but also, obviously, that's our passion, but right. also all these events that bring out sort of more life experience part. So a lot of what you do as a scientist is communicating with other scientists about your science. Right. But then you also have to communicate with potential scientists so you have to do a lot of teaching right so how's teaching going for you or how's it been no it's great i love teaching as graduate student in the mcb departments i went to teach two times and actually personally i've taught three times and because i just love it so what we do usually we pair it up with faculty member who actually teach the class as lecturer so the student will meet with the lecturer or the faculty member three times or two times a week and the teaching assistant which our what our roles are would be to meet with a student in a separate time in a discussion section where we go over main concepts and do practice problem with them um, so we get to interface with the, about 20 to 30 students per class and meet them once a week to talk about those and I just Love it. I interact with many type of students. Some of them are really advanced, and we will show them in lab, and some of the undergrads join our lab that I, nice. I taught. And some students who have less background, and that's where I need to learn how to be creative, explaining things, and to understand where their needs are and trying my best to provide an explanation or support to help them succeed in the class as well. And 
that is hard. You know, knowing what to say so then people get something is not trivial. It takes experience and a lot of patience. Right. Do you ever just feel like you have to have four different ways to explain one thing before you even start a class, just just in case somebody's going to ask you a question? Yeah, usually for me, I actually can never anticipate right. <laughs> what kind of question I'm going to get. I, I generally have like a guess of what what the major confusion is because usually for teaching a system we also sit in the lecture so sometimes i i think we will get a sense of what is the easy point for confusion so we will usually go over those in the discussion section first but obviously each student may have different blind spot and they will come to office hour then we will you know sit with them and trying to talk through what the confusion is and many strategy would need it. Sometimes I need to dance in front of the class to make them understand something. Or sometimes use analogy, like the engine analogy, like second ago that I used that was coming from my teaching. I realized that how people understand. So right. now I become part of my day-to-day conversation, you know, using analogy, <laughs> making gestures, like facial expressions. Yeah. It, it, teaching also become like part of my life now. <laughs> nice. So you mentioned you teach all kinds of students at different yeah. levels. So some of the students you've taught have come into your lab. Actually, being a scientist, a big part of it is this mentorship, right? Absolutely. Like teaching outside the classroom, inside yeah. the lab. How's that experience been for you? Yeah, it's great. I have a wonderful student who worked with me for the past a year and a half. Um, she joined the lab in during her second to third year summer and teaching someone who has no idea what research is for the first time is exciting and challenging because the simplest thing that you saw for many times would be such a great excitement for someone who first did see it right right so it's really refreshing to have someone new to work with me and and my students learn really fast and also seeing the growth is really impressive and you know that's the sense of fulfillment you get from teaching and mentoring is the growth of the person you're training and that's what in a sense like how I got to where I am and so being able to give back and seeing that's the trajectory that people are going is very interesting and and exciting for me so mentorship is really important to you right you've uh, actually you're involved in a outreach program yeah around it yeah absolutely yeah so berkeley actually have many great outreach program for example being scientist program the basis program the expand for horizon which are different levels of mentoring outreaching and some of them for middle school some of them are elementary school and some are for girls to get into science and the program that i'm particularly involved in is called the nih bridge to bachelor programs and or short for b2b program which brings in underrepresented community college students to the berkeley campus to do cutting edge research so our community college students come from the bay area from palta or like the Shippo area and then they come in this summer to do about 10 weeks of research and we pair them with a mentor who is passionate and about mentorship who we need to actually apply to our program and then that mentor will basically allow the student to work in part of their project for the summer and then outside of that actually day-to-day lab we as a coordinator that's our roles we also structure weekly dinner with the students to talk about difficulties in labs and life sort of to give a more 
like a safe environment for the student to share about what they learn in lab and what can be hard. And because these students come from a non-traditional background, the issue that they face is not just scientific or academic, but also you know financial, social, and self-confidence. Right? Those are the stuff that we work on during the summer with them as well. And at the end of the summer, the student will they will be awesome scientists. So they will present their result as poster section and the lab that they work in and the greater community, their family would come and see them being scientists. And so, yeah, it's definitely a wonderful program and give a lot of meaning to the students and more for us and as the graduate student who work with them and seeing the growth over time. This is kind of a program for both the graduate student and for the, the undergraduate student. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So what's special of this program is actually we recruit the mentors who are graduate student and postdoc directly rather than a lot of other programs will defer the application of the student to the PI of the lab or the principal investigator or the head of the, the lab. Right. And then from the the PI, then you would get assigned a student or a postdoc to work with. But now we took in more of an active role for the student, like for the graduate student and the postdoc, to speak up for themselves. I want to be a mentor for the student. So we sent an application to the whole community of like in Berkeley, IB, MCB, neuroscience, biophysics, right? All the department. And then we asked the student, like asked the mentors to apply to our program by answering specific questions like, how are what are you gonna do this summer? Like, how do you interact with the student? Like, what your mentoring style is like? What's your background like? So then, after that, um, having the student and the mentors apply, and we know a little bit more about themselves, and we will pair them up based on their interests and their background, and it worked pretty well so far because both party knew each other before they start the summer, and we knew that they were a good match. How long have you been doing this now? Yeah, so I joined two years ago. This will be my third year doing this. How have the students done since the summer that yeah. they spent with the program? Yeah, we um, this program has actually have a longer history than um, when I joined. Um, right. So this is an NIH-funded program, so it actually has finished its third renewal. So before then, when the program first started, we didn't recruit mentor directly. So it's a bit more scattered in terms of student experience, whether they had a good mentor or not. But since we started this new method of recruiting mentor directly, I would say like most of our experience have been positive. Students enjoy the program. And in terms of outcome-wise, like over 80% of our students transfer to four-year college, and many of them are still majoring in STEM. And yeah, some of them go on to graduate school, some become medical doctor. It's been a very transformative experience for us to see these students are continuing so well. It's definitely a great program to be in. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. We're getting towards the end of the interview. Is there anything you'd just like to say just uh any messages you'd like to leave yeah no i certainly what i learned sort of throughout my whole sort of uh, moving to the state you know going to college now deciding become a researcher this whole process made me realize one simple fact it's just scientists can come from anywhere like when i just moved here i didn't know that i would become a scientist I don't have any relative that were scientists. Um, and not knowing the language really also 
make me self-doubt a little bit about whether I can be anything, you know. But then I have great teachers, great mentors who support me along the way and help me believe that that's possible. And I think that's true because I'm living the life right now, right? So I think being able to believe in yourself and meeting great people, taking a turn in the road is fine. And I think that is what make anyone can become scientists. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's been great. great talking to you. Thank you, Andrew. It's always nice to be able to share my story.